I am so glad to be back with you. We are going to look at lessons that might be a little bit unpleasant, but let me correct a mistake in the second service that I made in the first. You have the benefit of your brothers and sisters who came to the first service suffering the mistakes that I didn't know I was going to make, I can take corrective action. Don't, don't feel too superior. I'll make other mistakes in this sermon <laughs> that will hopefully then be corrected in the third service. But by that point, I'm feeling a little tired, and that leads to new mistakes. <laughs> it's kind of an adventure up here every Sunday. The mistake was simply this. I should have told the first service that the notes that you now have in front of you, hopefully in the bulletin, are actually for teaching this Sunday and next. So don't be concerned, because I'm going to spend 95% of the time on the first point. Don't be concerned, as I think some of them may have been, he's never going to make it. No. <laughs> that's 100% correct, and that's, that's purposeful. That's okay. Okay? My wife and I had the blessing from God of raising two boys. Both of those boys took after their mother and enjoyed sports and became athletes. And like most athletes, they never won the whole thing. They were never champions. They were playoff athletes a few times, but never, ever held the gold medal, never won the whole big prize. In fact, most of them in almost every sport they played, with the exception of a few bright, shining moments, most of the teams they played on weren't very good and they lost a lot. And the senior year, my son in his fourth year of football said to me, Dad, I'm tired of building character. I want to win. <laughs> and everyone who's ever played any kind of game or sport who has any natural human desire to win understands that. This sermon is intended to be something that will help you set your mind on character and discover through not my opinion but by what God actually said in His Word, discover what God can do and the purposes that God has when He directs your life through suffering. And there's a pitfall there. Whenever somebody, no matter how truthful or well-intentioned, starts telling hurting people of the good that can come from it, it can come across as uncompassionate, unmerciful, even indecent. I mean, I've, I've cringed so hard it actually has hurt my body a couple of times to be with people as a pastor in shattering experiences with other people. And some well-meaning soul will come in, and as the tears are dripping hot off every face, says, well, let's think of all the good that's going to come from this. Thinking on an addition of everything else, we might not have a murder in this living room <laughs> as they righteously set upon this miserable comforter. That's a pitfall for anybody to tell you what good can come from suffering. That's because love not only has to be truthful, love also has to be considerate and love has to be timely. So, in the trust that we're sitting here in church and every single one of us has come in with a heavy burden, maybe some of you with a burden too great you feel to bear, 
But we're in church, and we're sitting together, and we have our Bibles open. Let me invite you to pick your eyes up and set them a little higher than your present circumstances, as painful as they may be. And let me show you what the Bible says your father may be doing. And some of the things he's always working on, I can tell you with confidence, there are some things that God always wants to do, both in times of blessing and in times of testing. When life is almost too good to be believed and everything finally lines up for you and everything is joyous and happy and sunshiny, God is working on a specific thing and His purpose does not change when the darkness descends for you. So I don't want to be misunderstood or make you, me being misunderstood is not the most important thing, I don't want to be misunderstood to unnecessarily and unbiblically make you pull back from what your father is doing when you suffer. I want you in this relative calm that we have now, even if your circumstances are very difficult, to keep in mind what God is always working on so that you can have the full benefit of his work. The truth is we're all going to go through the pain anyway. The best thing we can do is cooperate with our Father's purpose, and it may bring little pleasure in the moment and little relief rather in the moment, but somebody told me people can endure almost anything, they can put up with almost any how if they can remember why. This sermon then is intended to be doctrinal, biblical, draw from several places of Scripture to show you from across the Bible what your Father is doing and what good, whether we like it or not and understand it in the moment, what good can actually come from our own suffering. If you have your bulletin, it'll be easier to follow along with me. But let me tell you first and most importantly, this simple biblical truth. Like little else, suffering can help us grow in godliness. Suffering can help us grow in godliness. Let me show you a trio of passages in Psalm 119. Psalm 119, verse 67, says this, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Well, Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the entire Bible, and it's all about Scripture. It's all about what God has said in writing. It's about the Bible you're holding, in other words. It's originally about the Old Testament. By extension, it includes the good news of Jesus and everything that Christ taught His disciples and the deeds and letters of those first Christians that we have in the New Testament. That is God's Word to us. And listen to this testimony. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Would you read that with me? First service did an amazing job reading the Bible with me. I would invite you to uh, compete with them and do even better, okay? There's more of you. Let's read together. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. I don't know exactly what the psalmist was thinking of, but speaking as an ordinary Christian who happens to be a pastor, I can tell you I've had several hot stove moments spiritually in my life where I've gone astray, I've knowingly done what God forbids, I've disobeyed Him, and pain came into my life as a result of my disobedience to God. Has that ever happened to anybody else? 
That's, I think, the testimony here. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. And there's been at least a handful of moments where the hot stove moment, the pain was so severe, the consequences were so sharp that I said to myself, I'm never disobeying God, at least not in that area. I got it. That stove was hot. I'm never touching the stove again. He told me to keep my hands off the stove. From this point forward, I will. Now, please, if we're in the middle of a series, I'm not telling you that your suffering, whatever it may be, is necessarily a result of your disobedience to God. The first week in this series told us that we live in a world that is wrecked by sin. There is more fallenness, more evil, more dysfunction in the world than we are even willing to believe. So we may not at any moment know why anything is happening, but there are moments specifically where we go astray, we wander away from the Good Shepherd, we get into the ravine, we're carried away by the white water. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. A few verses later, Psalm 119, verse 71 gives us another perspective. Read that with me, please. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. That first phrase, it was good for me that I was afflicted. You ever come to the point in life where you can say that? It's a hard thing to say. Only time and perspective and growth and learning can allow you to say with the psalmist, being afflicted, being in the furnace, hurting, suffering was good for me, and here's the good that came out of it. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Suffering can be used powerfully in God's hand to produce godliness. Please hear this. You can waste your suffering. Please don't. You can touch the hot stove and keep touching it. Through no specific fault of your own, all kinds of pain, all kinds of trouble can engulf you, and that can make you bitter toward God and bitter toward the people who try to speak to you about Him. Don't do that. But every single person that the Father welcomes into His family because we live in a fallen world, and more importantly, because of your Father's eternal, unchanging purpose, every single child that is welcomed into God's family will suffer. The question is what we will do with it. The psalmist says in verse 71, apparently from the perspective of relief, of being on the other side of it, of having grown and learned and changed through it. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. And that makes great sense to me. That word is true because God spoke it, but I can verify that from my own experience. Blessing, pleasure, joy, success have taught me relatively little. Pain always gets my attention. I think that's part of being a fallen person and living in a fallen world. Our default setting is that if things are going great, things are as they should be. And it's pain, it's dysfunction, it's illness, it's injury, it's relational trouble, it's job loss, it's economic pressure, it's suffering, in other words, from wherever it comes, that that's the abnormal thing that is happening. 
That perspective is wrong, but God uses all circumstances, both good circumstances and difficult circumstances, to draw us close to Him and that we may learn who He is and what He has said. It just so happens that for most of us, pain gets our attention way more than pleasure. You ever been on a long long hike and suddenly hurt yourself? In that moment, you don't think about the nine miles that you just walked comfortably. You immediately begin to wonder about the very next step. One thing I think that we can do to maybe, maybe, shorten our time in the furnace is to be attentive to God when He first starts to speak to us. Speaking very practically, here's my specific prayer. I've prayed this for years. God, please let me listen and obey you when you whisper so that you don't have to shout. Because he does know what is best for you. He has put it in writing. He has given you his Holy Spirit. He is determined to produce godliness in you. And the psalmist gives you from the perspective of experience under the guidance of the Holy Spirit that affliction can be good, that it is good for us because it makes us learn and obey and believe what God said. Now, may this may all seem very abstract and a little bit painful, but a few verses later, I read one of the most comforting verses in the whole Bible. And you need to know this. God's faithfulness guides this entire process. Psalm 119, verse 75 says this, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Notice these trio of verses are connected. I began in verse 67, I moved to verse 71, and the psalmist picked up the same thought. Now he's looking back at what he told you about pain and suffering about how it was good for him. It got him back on the path with God. He learned from it. And now he gives you this amazing, comforting truth that in all circumstances, both that acute pain that comes like a bolt out of nowhere and the chronic pain that has been part of your life for years for which there will be no earthly relief, in all of those circumstances, painful as they are, your father's attitude toward you is always the same. He is faithful. His rules are righteous. What he says and what he commands is always true and always right, and what guides his hand always is his own faithfulness. It's never chaotic. It's never unloving. It's never cruel. It may, if you're disobedient, be corrective, but even when his correction comes into your life, it is always a perfect, loving, faithful God that is dealing with you at all times. This verse came to mean to me, came a lot, came to mean a lot to me many years ago when our family was going through something really, really tough when we lived in Mexico. I won't share that with you because it doesn't matter. But in a very trying time, taking mainly my own counsel because it was a very lonely experience, God directed me to this verse. It was very helpful to know that a week earlier, before all that pain engulfed us, God had been faithful and His faithfulness had not changed now that we were in this trouble. 
Please keep that in mind. If you judge God's character by your circumstances, you won't walk with Him for long and you won't understand who He is at all. He is always faithful. It's not that He works faithfulness or shows faithfulness. He is faithful. It's His very character, and that is unchanging. So this verse came into my life, and I started, we got through that. God took us out of that deep valley, and I started hanging on to it. And maybe that's why it came to my mind many years later after we moved back here to the United States. A dear friend of mine called, and even though he's part of a wonderful church and could have called his pastor, he called me because we're, we've been such close and lifelong friends. His wife had been pregnant, and the pregnancy was pretty close to complete. And then she miscarried, and it was very close to a stillborn child. And he asked me to come. And I was honored to do so. But I'm a young man, holding a dead baby for the first time in my life. And what do you say? What do I say, especially? And I said, listen, this might be more, this might not be the right time for this, but the only verse that God brought to my mind as I drove to this hospital is this verse that has meant so much to me. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. In other words, he's in charge and right now he's directing you through pain, but his faithfulness hasn't changed at all. And we cried, and I prayed, and I left. And one of the troubles of being a pastor is you often leave a scene wondering if you were helpful. And even if you said something that was true, if it's received in a way that can be helpful to the people that you tried to come alongside. Years later, that sweet godly mother was kind enough to tell me that that verse became a bit of a mainstay for her. And she wrote her own beautiful reflection on the fact that the character of God had not moved or changed one iota from the blessing of the children that she currently enjoyed and the child that had gone on ahead to her to glory. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Your God is sovereign. He's not chaotic. He's not random. He's not cruel. You may not understand entirely why something has come into your life. No other Christian on earth may be able to explain it to you. And sometimes the most difficult thing is God himself may not tell you why anything is happening. Job didn't get an answer. If you read the book of Job, you are given the backstage pass. You can see what God is doing the whole way. Job pleads for an answer and never gets it. You get to see his blessing, you get to see his recovery, you get to see his vindication. I don't see anywhere in Scripture that Job ever understood what that was all about. But I do know this, and Job knew this, and that's why God at the end said that Job had spoke, had not spoken against God. He had not betrayed God. Job maintained his conviction that in spite of his life falling apart, the faithful God who had blessed him for years had not changed an ounce. He was faithful still. And that's what you need to hold on to. That's the vision we need to have when circumstances cloud our eyes with suffering. We need to look a little bit higher to see the faithfulness of God. Let me help 
us understand it a little better by giving you Paul's treatment of it in Romans chapter 5, please. Romans chapter 5. These are six verses, and I want to show you a little sandwich that Paul made here in six verses. Here's, the, here's one bookend, here's one loaf of good bread on top of the sandwich, the first two verses. We're just going to study the Bible together for a minute. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Is that good news or bad news? Enormously good news. Because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, and because you have put your trust in Him, you are justified. You're declared not only not guilty, but you are declared righteous in the presence and in the sight of God, and because God has declared you righteous, you now have peace with Him. From the moment you trust Jesus as Savior, the disposition of your heavenly Father toward you is always and only peaceful. Make sense so far? Verse 2, it gets better. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. In other words, not only has the righteous judge acquitted us, he's welcomed us into relationship with him. And we stand before him and we stand with him as his beloved children. And that confidence gives us joy while we wait someday to enjoy the fullness of his glory. Peace right now, the hope of the glory of God later, in the future. You will know Jesus as He is. You will enjoy the fullness of God's forgiveness and love. There will be no more sin and no more pain to cloud your relationship with Him and distort what you think about Him. All of that is just ahead, and Paul says, because of that, we rejoice. And then it takes a turn. Look in verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Do you hear the humor? Do you hear people laugh? Now, it really took a turn to the left that some people may wish is not there. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces what? And endurance produces? And character produces hope. Paul says, not only are we rejoicing in the peace that we already have with God, not only are we rejoicing looking forward to future glory with God, that eternal perspective gives us an earthly possibility. We rejoice in our sufferings because the suffering is going to do something for us. Suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. Read verse 5 with me. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is the other bookend. I want you to see this. Verses 1 and 2 are pure good news. Verses 5 and 6 are also pure good news. 
The hard part is in the middle in verses 3 and 4, and Paul has the assurance to rejoice even in his sufferings, knowing that his heavenly Father is working through suffering to give him endurance. And that endurance is going to produce character, and that character is going to give him hope. And he says, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The reason we have peace with God, the reason we someday look forward to enjoying the fullness of God's glory is God loves us so much, He has given us not only His Son, but also His Holy Spirit. How did He do that? Verse 6. Read verse 6 with me, please. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's love. So one thing I try to do, and listen, I'm talking to you. I hope this comes across. I hope you hear this is sincerity. This is truthfulness. I'm not an expert on suffering. And as I told you the first week of this series, I don't want to be. I'm satisfied with what I know about suffering already. I don't want another painful phone call. I don't want any more bad news. I don't want to lose another family or friend. I don't want one more broken or strained relationship. I hate cancer. This life is hard. But what I'm trying to show you, what I'm calling a sandwich, if you prefer, Paul puts his earthly perspective that he rejoices in suffering, knowing that good can come from it because his suffering will give him endurance and his endurance will produce character in him and his character will give him hope of future glory. But the reason he can do that is because, first bookend, he already has peace with God. He already stands in a peaceful, loving relationship with God. And the reason that happens is because God has already sent his son to die for him when he was ungodly and sealed the life of Christ in the life of the sinner that was Paul by pouring his Holy Spirit into Paul's heart. It's that eternal perspective that gives us the ability to patiently stay under the Father's hand and not resist His work while He makes us godly. Charles Spurgeon is my favorite preacher, and if you've never read anything of Spurgeon, it's easy to do. Just Google it. He's a very, very voluminous preacher and writer. He has devotional books. He is a spectacular theologian and preacher. Those of us who preach call Spurgeon the prince of preachers. And his writing on suffering is some of the best in the world, not only because Paul, Spurgeon knew his Savior and his Bible, but because Spurgeon suffered too. He suffered from post-traumatic stress. He suffered from seasonal affective disorder. He had what would therapists today could only call clinical depression, and he suffered with very painful bouts of physical pain because he suffered from gout. In just about every way, Spurgeon knew what it was to hurt, which gives him confidence and authority to reflect on suffering when he said this, God is chiseling you, making you into the image of Christ. None can be like the man of sorrow unless they have sorrows too. What is God always working on? He's always working to make you like Jesus. Both the blessings and the pleasure and the joy, and the happiness, in all of that, He wants to make you grateful. He wants to make you humble. He, when He's blessing you, He wants to make you like Jesus. It's always the same when He is 
guiding you through pain. That purpose never changes. Look over with me in Romans chapter 8. Let me show you how true this is. Romans chapter 8. And let's look at the very well-known verse, Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Paul wrote, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Have you heard that verse before? A lot of people have. What often gets neglected is what Paul wrote next. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called, and those whom He called, He also justified, and those whom He justified, He also glorified. Question for you, do you feel glorified? Do you? That wasn't rhetorical. I'm really asking. No. And yet, Paul speaks of it in the past tense. Did you notice? Why is that? Because Paul is announcing to you a gospel truth. What God is going to do for you is so certain and so good that it's as if it had already happened. He has given you peace with God. He has justified you with God. He has predestined you, and look what He has predestined you to. Verse 29, He has predestined you to be conformed to the image of His Son. That's what Spurgeon called chiseling. God, the master sculptor, is shaping you into the image of your Savior. Jesus is your great big brother who has ushered you by his sacrifice into the family of God. And your heavenly father is going to make you into the image of his son. And he does that through everything he does for you. The blessings, the joys, the success, it's all intended to draw you closer to him. It just so happens that for most of us, the pain does that a whole lot better. And look how descriptive the phrase is. God is chiseling you. If the stone could speak, do you think he would speak and tell you that he enjoys it? No. But it'll be worthwhile, and it is so certain that Paul speaks not only of your present justification, but of your future glorification in the past tense. It's as certain as yesterday's news. That's what God is doing. He just wants the Christ-likeness to come into your life and be visible to him and bring glory to him and be a good use to others before you get to heaven. He's determined to make you Christ-like, to make you godly now. That's the first and the most important thing. The second, much easier, much shorter, is this. Suffering can also help us become a blessing to others. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. Read it with me. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Let's move through this. God, Paul begins by praising God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and look at God's character. He is the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. In other words, mercy and comfort flow from his own character. He is the source of every mercy. He is the God who extends 
every comfort. Paul says, who knew more about suffering than I do and more even than Spurgeon did, he comforts us in all of our affliction. Why? Keep reading with me. He comforts us in all our, of all of our afflictions so that we, what? May be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. And you might say, I don't want to be useful to people like that. <laughs> and may I suggest to you that that's part of the problem? And that God will direct pain into your life so that He can in turn comfort and give His child mercy, and He will make His child like His only beloved Son, Jesus, and you can represent Jesus in that room to others once He has comforted and given you peace. A final story. The best pastor I ever knew to comfort hurting people was a Mexican pastor named Felipe Ordoñez. Felipe was one of those boys that grew up in Mexico City that you see at street corners in Mexico, sometimes selling gum and pencils. He was desperately poor. He lived in a particular neighborhood setting common to Mexico called a vecindad. Little, poor, difficult community. He said, brother, I was so hungry all the time and my shoes were so thin that I could step on a piece of gum in the street and know what flavor it was. <laughs> Had humor, too. Because of the wild disparity in income, Felipe had become a convinced communist. In a study of economics, it was being supported by funds outside of Mexico, namely the Soviet Union and Cuba, to import the communist revolution into Mexico, and for a time, he was into it. It was only studying in the Soviet Union and studying in Cuba that disenchanted him with that human system. That disenchantment led him literally into suicidal alcoholism. But God had placed a Christian roommate in Felipe's life who Felipe tormented because of his Christian faith until all of his suffering broke him. He was happy to hear the gospel, and it saved his life in every sense. Because of all that suffering, he became the most adequate Christ-like pastor in a hospital room or in the presence of suffering people that I'd ever met. I was the senior missionary. I was supposedly in Mexico to train him. But once I saw what God had done in his life and how God could use him, I would take him to hurting people and say, I'm Bruce, this is Pastor Felipe. Felipe? And I would step back. And I've never physically been in a room with Jesus Christ. But Felipe made it really clear to understand how Jesus would have acted, what Jesus would have said, and how he would have listened, and how he would have talked to those people. Why did he do that? Because he suffered deeply. A lady after church said to me after the first service, I absolutely hated that sermon. And I said, well, thank you. <laughs> and we've been friends for a long, long time, so I just kept listening. And what God is doing in her life, and I won't mention any names, God is using all the pain that Jesus has brought her faithfully through all of these years to make her an enormously adequate Christ-like counselor, listener, helper, and teacher to women who are in the same kind of trouble and the same kind of furnace of suffering that she was once in. This is what God does. None of us will suffer everything. Only Jesus did that. 
But consider the fact that your pain, if you hold on to God's hand, will someday be a gift and a blessing to others. That's one of the things that I need you to pick up your vision and understand that God wants to use suffering to make you godly and to make you a blessing someday to others. Let's pray together, please. Can I just give you a moment to talk to your Heavenly Father about the trouble you may be in? You may ask Him to respond well to what He's doing, even if you don't understand it, that you'll trust His character. Father, not a single one of us, not, certainly not me, is immune from suffering. None of us speak from a theoretical point of view when we talk about pain. We're all in some kind of pain and trouble and uncertainty, and some feel that it's almost too much to bear. Would you give your children the comfort and the grace of looking to you and trusting your faithful heart? And would you make all of us more like Christ because we have spent time with you in affliction. May we be able to say with the psalmist, it's your faithfulness that guided it. It was good for us to learn. We once strayed from you, but after being afflicted, we now obey you. And you've made us, Lord, a little more Christ-like. And have, you've given us comfort and you've given us mercy. And now we are able to share with others the same exact comfort you once gave us. Make us, Lord, in name and deed, Christians. Make us Christ-like, I pray in Jesus' name. And Crosspoint says, amen.